Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Hey there, Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode of Three Spooked Girls. It's your gal pal, Jessica. And as always, I am joined by my favorite ghoul friend, Tara. Hey, Spooksters. And this week, we are coming at you with a case that broke almost 30 years ago. The anniversary of this crime is tomorrow, August 20th. We are excited to be doing this episode on the Menendez Brothers. Yes, so excited. But then that makes me sad because that means then I'm almost 30. Okay. (laughs) I know. Shush your face, Tara. (laughs) I know. It's fine. Continue. It's okay. I'm not old. (laughs) Okay. So let's do our business and then our drinks and then our promo and then we'll get down to business. Yeah, girl. So as always, Tara has prepared a wonderful link tree that is in the show notes that takes you to every place you want to go. It's like the monorail at Disneyland. It is. Except for the monorail at Disneyland takes you nowhere you want to go. (laughs) I mean, true. As soon as I said it, I was like, it doesn't take you anywhere. It takes you to like the Matterhorn and then the hotel. I mean, if it's the end of the day and you're tired, you do want to go to your hotel. Very, very true. (laughs) I should say it's more like the train at Disneyland. True. But anyway, in the show notes, you can find the links to all of our socials, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all at Three Spooked Girls. If you want to join our group page, it's Three Spooked Girls Official. And if you're a $5 or above patron, we have a Spookster Club, which is a Facebook group just for you guys. If you're not already in it, make sure you go and check it out. If you want to know how to become a patron, there's a link for that too. It'll take you to Patreon, which if you just want to go, it's patreon.com slash three spooked girls. We really appreciate all of our patrons right now. And just know that everything that is donated to the show goes back into the show, whether it's helping us get new equipment or be able to upgrade merch, stuff like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And speaking of patrons, they'll get to watch this full episode that we're recording right now and also all the fun shenanigan bloopers that will get cut by me. <laughs> yes. Yes. And just to let you guys know, I put on lipstick for this fine occasion. Yes. So that our spooksters weren't staring at me looking like the crazy person I was because I went swimming after work. (laughs) And forgot. And I was like, oh, hey. (laughs) However, they will see that my eyebrows are a little crooked, which is fine. And that I love them. We still love you. It's fine. So what are you drinking today, friend? Well, I wanted a sweet wine tonight. So I just went with my good old barefoot sweet red and grabbed a bottle of that. And I got it in my little mermaid tumbler tonight. So yeah. Ooh, is that by the Alaska Chicks Company? Yeah, I got it from or no, no, no. This one's a different store. It's actually called the Mermaid Company. And they have Alaska Starfish Company, I think is what the other one's called. They're like partner stores, but they're super cute. They have like all kinds of hydro flask stuff in there that they get etched. <gasps> so cute. I like my etched hydro flasks. Mm-hmm. They're fun. I have a wine tumbler. very similar. It says um, nobody understands me like Tito's. <laughs> Shout out to Sarah for finding that. <laughs> Serious. <laughs> This week, since we are talking about the Menendez brothers, I decided to drink a Mike's Hard Lemonade, the harder edition, cranberry flavored, if anyone cares, because they are serving some hard time. Very witty. Very witty. I love it. And also delicious. I like that you didn't even try. You were like, eh, good job, Jessica. My seven-year-old is wittier than you. No, I wasn't. (laughs) No, I liked it. (laughs) But you told me before we started, so. (laughs) That's very true. I did. I tried my dad joke out ahead of time. Uh, It's okay. I don't mind. I don't mind. But I appreciate it. And I liked it. And I mean, those I like cranberry. So it is delicious and um, refreshing. And what other kind of business do we have for them today, Tara? Well, the last thing we have before we jump in is our quick promo break from our pod friends. 
Hello, and welcome to Nothing Ever Happens in Canada, and I'm Canadian Girl. Do you like adventures, myths, legends, and learning about some of Canada's greatest moments in history? Well, then this is the podcast for you. Join me every two weeks as we travel around Canada, exploring things like mermaids, giants, lost gold mines, and we even stop once in a while to observe historical events and people. Come on over to the channel and join the crew by hitting that subscribe button today. You don't want to miss out on our next adventure. Is your Netflix queue basically all true crime movies and series? Do you ever wonder why you can't open a bottle of Tylenol without using the jaws of life? Crime Culture, hosted by me, Haley Langan, and me, Caitlin Mahar, is a podcast that discusses true crime, pop culture, and how the two relate. From killers that have inspired hit films like Silence of the Lambs, to the motives for crimes such as the murder of John Lennon. Join Haley and me every Tuesday to discover the pop culture side of true crime. I hope you guys enjoyed those. If you do, go check out their shows. They are a wonderful group of podcasters. Mm-hmm. And we're going to dive right in and talk about the Menendez brothers. And Tara's going to kick us off with a little bit of history about the crime. And then, you know, I'm going to come in for the trial and talk about that stuff. Whew, yes. So buckle in. If you have no idea about this case, it's got some heavy stuff. And I'm just going to put it out there right now. And you might have seen it in the show notes. But a huge disclaimer before I even like jump in. If you're triggered by cases involving sexual abuse or child abuse or anything like that, this is probably not one for you. So you may want to skip this. Same with Neverland. We're not going to go into super, super detail on any of that, but it will be discussed. If that makes sense. If you haven't listened to that episode, you can check that out. We just wanted to put that out there because we don't ever want to put any of our spooksters in a bad place. So yeah, there's that little disclaimer there for you guys. And like Tara said, I want to reiterate your mental health and well-being is more important than you listening to our show. So if that is a trigger for you, we will see you on Thursday for a stabby snippet. But you know, if not, or if you want to try, please continue to listen. It's going to be a great episode. We're going to talk about a lot of great things. And yeah, let's get going. Yes, for sure. Okay, so with all of that said, this case is something that is just like, it's huge and it's a clusterfuck of things. And it's definitely not what it seems or what it seemed Mm -hmm. to me when I first started learning about this, especially even in the 90s when this case first was presented. It was essentially laid out like a soap opera, I think is a safe thing to say, because it was saying like (laughs) for the headlines and stuff, because it was saying like Beverly Hills sons killing their parents for money. But as we go on through the story, you guys will learn it's a lot more than that. Mm -hmm. But like Jessica said, I'm going to take us from the beginning of the family and then how they got to the point of the murder and then discuss how that night unfolded. Lyle and Eric's father, Jose Menendez, was born on May 6th of 1944, and he was actually from Havana, Cuba. So at the age of 16, he actually decided to move to the U.S. And when he was here, he attended the Southern Illinois University, where he met his wife, Mary Louise Anderson, a.k.a. Kitty. And then from here on out, she's pretty much always referred to as Kitty. She basically was described as everything he wanted with the American dream. She was super well-liked. She was successful. She was beautiful. The whole package. So he swiped her up. Blonde hair, blue eyed dame. The all American girl, basically. So they fell in love and they got married in 1963. And then they moved to New York City where Jose was getting his degree in accounting from Queens College. So Lyle was born on January 10th of 1968. At this point, Kitty quit her teaching job after he was born and the family had moved to New Jersey. And then Eric was born on November 27th, 1970. So in New Jersey, the family lived in Hopewell Township, which is in Mercer County in New Jersey. And both the brothers attended Princeton Day School. I'd also like to note something, too, and this will kind of start preluding how the family dynamic was. There was things from like family members and stuff that had said Kitty did want to go back to work after becoming a mom. But Jose had told her no, that her place was to take care of the kids at home. So he was one to have all of the control, as we'll learn, and things like that. So teeny, teeny sneak peek of the dynamic with this family. Mm-hmm. So then in 1986, Jose's career as a corporate executive took the family to Calabasas, California, where the brothers lived during their whole adolescence. Might sound familiar. That's where the rich and famous live, you know, like <laughs> Jeffree Star, the Kardashians. But, you know, at that point, it was like the Jenners, a bunch of really rich, well-to-do people, cream of the crop, essentially. 
So the following year, Eric began attending high school in Calabasas, and this is where he earned average grades, but he was super talented as a tennis player. He actually had ranked 44th in the nation for 18 and under players. So pretty cool. Lyle enrolled at Princeton University, but during his freshman year, he had gotten into some trouble. He was on academic probation for poor grades and attendance, and eventually he was suspended for a whole year because he was being accused of plagiarism. So that's kind of a little bit of the background kind of up till this point. There's a lot more significance with their childhood and stuff, but we're going to kind of break that down a little bit more when we get to the trials and stuff, because that's when a lot more stuff started to blow up. Mm -hmm. So now that we got a little bit of foundation on this family, we're going to go ahead and just kind of switch gears a little bit and get on the pathway to the murders. So I'm going to talk about essentially the week prior to the night Kitty and Jose were killed, because there was a lot, a lot of stuff that happened that is significant and what led to all of this happening, pretty much. Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest parts of my research, and thank you, Jessica, for telling me to watch this, was a docu-series on A&E called The Menendez Murders, Eric Tells All. I highly, highly recommend it. You are most welcome. Yes, seriously. I highly, highly fucking recommend it. It's on Hulu, and it might be on some other stuff, too, or if you have, like, cable. I know, like, A&E has an app. Since we're going to be in the anniversary time, I'm Mm -hmm. sure it's probably going to be playing. Oh, it's going to be running. Yeah, it's going to be running. So definitely, definitely watch. Okay, so like I said, that week before the murder, it was a huge pivotal time for the family. Eric had just graduated high school. He was getting ready to go off to college at UCLA. Lyle was there. His parents were there. Everyone was back together for the graduation. But on August 13th of 1989, Eric was in the den with Jose, his dad, and he was explaining to him that he'd be living at home several nights a week, even though he had a dorm. This just crushed Eric's dream of being able to escape. And you're probably like, escape what? Well, you will see. Mm -hmm. So after this conversation, because Jose was not a nice man about things. Eric went up to his room and began to pack a bag and Kitty had came up to ask what was going on. And basically, Eric was just like, I'm going to a friend's house for a few days. And this turned into an argument with Kitty. She was like pulling his clothes back out of the bag. And she was like, no, you're not, whatever. But then she left the room and then Jose came back in. And this is when we get to hear a little bit about the physical abuse that happens. He had pushed Eric up against the wall and he had like his arm like up at his throat to like hold him slash choke him and asked him if they had a problem, basically. And he had said, I'm about to go on a business trip. You better be here when I get back. And Eric had said he just didn't have a reply because he just felt so defeated that he could not escape. So he felt like he lost any freedom he was about to have. Then on Tuesday, August 15th, there was an incident with Kitty and Lyle. Basically, Eric had said he had walked in and Kitty and Lyle had came out of the study, I believe it was. They were mid-argument. They were actually, if you don't know, Lyle wore a toupee, wore a hairpiece. And that was part of the argument that Eric saw. He said he heard his mother be like, you don't need that thing. It's stupid, blah, 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 that kind of thing. And she was like raging pissed and like ripped it off his head and threw it on the ground. And then I guess at this point, Eric had no idea about the hairpiece. So he just kind of stood there like shocked, like, what the fuck just happened? Like, what the hell? And his brother was obviously super embarrassed because obviously if he's he was what? 20. 20, 21. Early 20s, barely 20s, wearing a hairpiece. He's obviously has insecurities. So he's just like, shit, like, you know, he didn't want to talk about it or anything. But basically, this was a huge moment for these brothers, in my opinion. Huge, huge moment. And Eric says it too, that it was a huge moment. And I agree. It definitely is. Mm -hmm. Essentially, Eric is just like, you know what? Don't worry about it. I love you. I don't judge you. Huge, huge moment because this kind of verbalized to me and I'm sure to them that they were in what they were dealing with together. They weren't alone, that they could be a team and not be working against each other like they had been ingrained their whole lives, you know? Right. So I thought this, you know, that's obviously like a huge, huge thing. And then this opened up a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. And Eric started talking to Lyle about the sexual abuse he had gone through from his father. Lyle started to blame himself, just being like, how could he let this happen? And then at first, he was angry. He was trying to be like, well, why would you let this go on? Why wouldn't you tell anybody, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But Lyle saw right away what kind of reaction it just it triggered Eric 
understandably. And he started crying and shaking and everything. And he said he just switched how his approach with it. And he was just like, you know, it switched to more of a protector. He was like, I'm not going to let this happen again. Mm -hmm. So then that Thursday, August 17th, Lyle confronted Jose about the abuse with Eric. The response he got was basically to stay out of it and to not throw your life away. And this turned into like a full-blown argument from Lyle. He essentially just like went the fuck off on him. And this was something nobody did. Nobody did in the family. Nobody did in work. No one. Because Jose was described as a ruthless motherfucker. <laughs> so, and someone you did not fuck with. Like, I remember in the docuseries, it was like one of the people they were interviewing was like someone he used to work with. And he was like, yep, anytime he came to town, we knew people were getting fired. So, that kind of demeanor. Right. He was a dick, to say the very least. Exactly. So after this argument or towards the end of it, um, I believe it was like Eric had went up to his room to pretty much like hide from it. He's like, 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 no, can't, mm -mm, whatever. Mm -hmm. And Jose came in and was like banging on the door. Let me the fuck in. Let me the fuck in or whatever. And then came in and then classic, classic abuser. He started confronting Eric about him being like, why would you tell Lyle? He's going to tell everybody, like putting the blame on him, essentially. Right. Like most abusers do in these kind of situations. So Eric's trying to get away from him. He decides to go downstairs and Kitty's just sitting there with a drink and asks what's wrong or what's going on, something like that. And Eric tries to deflect Kitty and is just like, nothing, nothing, you wouldn't understand. But with <laughs> this pissed me the fuck off. So with this, Kitty's true colors start to show. Mm -hmm. Kitty responds, oh, I understand a lot more than you think. I've always known. And that obviously just stopped Eric in his tracks. And he's like, what the fuck? Like, what do you mean? Kind of thing. And she just said, what do you think? I'm stupid. And Eric says that at this point, he knew this was when his parents weren't going to let him or his brother get away and that he knew that they were going to kill him, at least him, if not both of them. Mm -hmm. So with all of this, like family blow up turmoil shit going on, we're going to go over the night of the murder. And it's funny because that docuseries is actually not that old. It's from like 2017. And it seems like with this case, people are very one side or the other with the camp on these brothers. Oh, yes. I will say that, I don't know, I'm sure maybe to someone I'm coming already across as super biased. But if you've listened to our Neverland episode, you already know with this kind of stuff, it's like we side with the victim. And in this case... It's not the victims you think. Right. So with all that, we're going to go ahead and like move on to the events that happened that night. So the short, what we know for sure, Jose and Kitty were in the den of their house in Beverly Hills when Lyle and Eric murdered them. Jose was shot in the back of the head with a Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun. Kitty was shot in the leg as she ran towards the hallway, causing her to slip in her own blood and fall. And then she was shot several times in the arm, chest, and face, leaving her unrecognizable. Both Jose and Kitty were also shot in the kneecaps, which is said to be an attempt to make the murders connected to an organized crime. Which, considering how they described their mentality that night, I don't know if I believe that part personally. Because, as we'll get into, a lot of the shots seemed very random. Mm -hmm. So if you think the boys are full of shit, that's fine. You're entitled to your own opinion. So according to that story, Kitty and Jose were just like chilling in the den. The boys barged in and opened fire out of nowhere. So the other side of it, I'm going to go ahead again and reference that A&E docuseries. Here's what happened that night, according to the boys. I actually went and snagged like a written out version of this because this was a lot easier than me trying to type everything like a crazy person while listening to this because I actually watched the episode, the first episode. This happens all in the first episode. I watched it twice because I wanted to like know all the details, you know, mm -hmm. but there was like an article I found that had it like written out really well. I think it was like people or something like that. I have it bookmarked. I'll link it in the show notes so you guys can check it out because it had more besides what I grabbed. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read that real quick so you guys can hear from Eric's point of view kind of how that went. After 10 p.m. on August 20th, 1989, Eric says that he and Lyle got into an argument with their parents at their Beverly Hills, California home. The fight then escalated. I was in the foyer, Eric recalls in the previous clip. Lyle was coming out of the den and my mom was following him saying, you're not going out. And Lyle asked why. My mom said, because I said so. And then my dad came out and he told my mom to shut up. He looked at Lyle and said, you're not going out. He told me to go to my room and he told me he'd be there in a minute. And then he told his father, you're not going to touch my brother. And 
in the docuseries, there's like interviews with Eric, but for Lyle, it's pretty much, I believe, like just the recordings from court. Like, I don't think they actually had talked to him. I think once. They had like a small conversation with him. Yeah, like once, but they didn't talk to him in detail like they did with Eric. Quote, dad, he charged at Lyle and he yelled, I do what I want in my family. He's not your little brother. He's my son, Eric says. Lyle claimed their mother said that I ruined the family and then my dad came out and took her by the arm and they walked into the den and my dad closed the doors. I was sure that was it. I realized that they had been waiting for Eric to get home like I had been and I just freaked out. I thought they were going to go ahead with their plan to kill us. Lyle said he ran upstairs to tell Eric how it was happening now, quote, as Eric said he was grappling with his own heightened emotions. I felt like my heart was going to explode. It was just pounding and I felt like my life was over right then. Lyle said he felt similarly that night as he described after he felt calling to 911 to claim somebody else had murdered their parents. I think I was just absolutely broken down with stress, he told Dateline in an episode earlier this month, which 2017, not this month. The subsequent investigations show that Lyle and Eric, 18 and 21 at the time, respectively, now 47 and 49, were armed with shotguns when they burst into the den of their family home while their parents watched TV. By the time the gunfire was over, the pair had shot their parents more than a dozen times. They fired on Father Jose at point-blank range and kept shooting Kitty, their mom, as she attempted to flee. Now, briefly, as mentioned from that excerpt I just read, when the boys were turned home later that night and Lyle called 911 and shouted, someone killed my parents, the police showed up and then they kind of had this like half-ass alibi that they were at the movies and stuff. But Eric had said like, that didn't really work out because the time on the tickets wasn't right. It was like too late at night or something. Like it didn't work. So, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't like a really solid alibi. Like they were both understandably just not in a solid mind he described as them just like getting in the car driving and then just like kind of half-assed tried to get rid of the guns like they didn't even really like they just kind of toss some dirt on them and things like that so in the months after the murders because at this point they had no leads and people who knew jose said that their reaction wasn't like a oh my god how could this happen it was a i'm not surprised If it was going to be somebody, it would be him. Right? Like, there was no love loss with anyone with him. No, not at all. And this is, it's not just ex-coworkers. This was family, too, because there was family members interviewed in that docuseries. So in the months after, they began to spend tons and tons and tons of money. More so Lyle than, than Eric. Oh, yeah. It was mainly Lyle. Lyle spent over 300 grand, and then Eric spent roughly about, like, eight nine thousand dollars so a huge difference eric had said like they were obviously extremely wealthy Mm -hmm. eric was like you know the eight or so grand i spent was kind of like normal expenses kind of thing but lyle kind of just went overboard with it he went and bought a porsche he bought a new watch like he did a bunch of stuff he bought a restaurant yeah he bought a buffalo wing restaurant (laughs) in uh princeton and eric describes it as you know when things were bad or he was sad, Kitty would take them and go shopping. So really, he said in his eyes, Lyle was using that as his coping mechanism. Now, with that said, Eric did the opposite. He just kind of spent what he, quote, needed to. He threw himself into tennis because, you know, like I said earlier, he was really talented at tennis. Mm -hmm. He hired a full-time coach and competed in a bunch of tournaments in like Israel. And they left the house just kind of like empty like that neither of them were there they decided to live in like adjoining condos in marina del rey and they also drove around la in their mom's mercedes benz and they ate out a lot really expensive Uh places and then they also took trips to the caribbean and london they think like with all of that and all together i think it was like those two i remember those two amounts i said they were like on some court document it was like The one you're referring to is it's like it was one of their month's Mm -hmm. credit card bills. Right. There we go. Okay. But altogether, in those months between the murders and their arrest, they spent about $700,000. Yeah. Fucking crazy. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense if their mom, Mm -hmm. like, taught them that how you soothe yourself as you go out and you buy things, they're going out and soothing themselves. Right. Yeah. No, I totally get that. So it makes sense, you know. If you know that fact, if not, you're like, these boys are living it up. What the fuck? Right. This did not help them whatsoever. No, it did not. Now, during the early stages of the investigation, they really tried to hone down on who would have killed Jose and Kitty. 
So fun fact, one of these people included a porn distributor named Noel C. Bloom, but he had no involvement and was quickly cleared. They also investigated potential mob leads, but nothing came of that because as we know, they had nothing to do with it. As the investigation continued, the police finally believed that the brothers were most likely the culprits since they obviously, quote, quote, had financial motives and spent a lot of money after the murders. Because, of course, with their deaths, there's like insurance policies, there's trusts, there's wills, there's there's all kinds of stuff, you know. And I, you know, at one point, the like the these companies that were wanting to pay out, they're just like, do you have like have you cleared them? We want to pay out. We want to be done with this. And the cops were like, well, not yet. So to try and get a confession out of Eric, the police contacted one of his really good friends whose name was Craig Cigarelli. They went to high school together. They were tennis buddies. So they essentially had him wear a wire when they went to lunch one day when they were at like just like, you know, just a local beachfront fancy ass restaurant, whatever. Craig actually asked him straight up if he killed his parents. Eric initially said no, but eventually confessed doing so not to Craig but to his psychologist, Jerome Ozeal. Now, this motherfucker, I feel like Jessica will probably have a field fucking day with him. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm not going to dive in too deep on to that, but this is not a good person either. No. He did a lot, a lot of bad things. Mm-hmm. So before I like jump the gun and steal some thunder, I'm going to end it right here. And Jessica will dive into the trials and some other details for you. So I'm going to dive in. I'm going to talk about the trial. I'm going to talk about them getting their asses caught, how they got caught, and then some other stuff that is not so pleasant. You have a lipstick change for the patrons who can see. I changed my <laughs> lipstick. I like it. It's one of those glitter flip ones where like you press your lips together and it makes it sparkly. Nice. Okay. Well, trial. Yes. Let's do this. Okay. So at this point in time, the brothers, they've really just kind of... Like Tara said, they've been spending a lot of money. The police are like, okay, these mofos did it, but we have no way to prove they did it. How do we prove they did it? So what they did, well, not really what they did. They got tipped off by a woman. And I'm going to say, I think her name is, we're going to call her Judy Smith because I can't say her regular name. That's fine. So Judy, see, Judy wasn't such a good person either. Mm -mm. Just pointing out. So as Tara mentioned, Eric went to a psychologist. His name was Dr. Jerome Ozeal. Now, Dr. Jerome Ozeal was not a good person. At the time that Eric is seeing him, he's actually got a suspended license for, I think it's called like dual work or something like that, or it's some sort of conflict of interest. What he was doing is he was treating someone. Instead of taking payment, he was making the person work in his house, which apparently you cannot do. Mm, Okay. I don't know. I don't know. So it was like he was a carpenter and he was making like the guy or he was a construction worker and he was making the guy like build shit in his house. So he kind of got in trouble for that. Well, he was also getting in trouble because Dr. Ozeal was a married man, but he had himself a side piece who just happens to be our Miss Judy Smith. And not only did Dr. Ozeal not keep, you know, HIPAA, which by the way, HIPAA didn't exist then. So no one, no one freak out. Um, just saying (laughs) came around in 2003 we're okay but not only did he not keep doctor patient confidentiality because he told Smith about the boys and what had happened and everything he recorded Eric's conversations without Eric's permission and would let Smith listen in yup I mean let's talk about an unethical motherfucker like if you're you know let's not If I could say anything to Eric in 1994 or whatever, or 1990, dude, just don't go to him. He's bad. He's bad news bears. All fucking bad. All fucking bad. Mm -hmm. So Miss Judy got really mad because Dr. Ozeal didn't want to leave his wife. And what did she do? She turned in the boys because Lyle came into a session and they confess on tape the murders of their parents and Lyle threatens Dr. Ozeal if you tell anyone we'll kill you because you know he was probably scared at that moment <laughs> Lyle later said that he wished he had they had never talked to Ozeal or confided in him because he didn't trust him but Eric did and you have to think about it like this like Eric is at this point in time what 19 20 years old mm-hmm. he's lost his parents granted he murdered his parents but like he's still lost he's been a victim of abuse his whole life I mean, just even the little bit that Tara told you about, 
Like, you can tell that there's, like, a physical abuse thing happening. Yeah. So I think Eric just really needed someone to look up to to confide in, and he picked the wrong person. Mm -hmm. So his tapes get confiscated, and on March 8th, 1990, Lyle is arrested. Now, Eric, like Tara mentioned earlier, is in Israel playing tennis. He basically had to turn himself in. He had to like he turned himself into the authorities in Israel and then had to fly back to Los Angeles from Israel. They were being held without bail and separate from each other, even though they were both being charged of the the same murders. They were being tried separately, but at the same time. It'll get a little muddy later. In my mind, I'm assuming they kept them separate so that they couldn't communicate and things like that. So, yeah, I get it. I think they get it. They did that, but they also, like, tried them separately, but at the same time. So they had two different juries. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's why when you're watching the docuseries, it'll say, like, Eric juror number two. And you're like, why the fuck does it say Eric juror? And then I'm like, oh, because there was two juries. Right. In August of 1990, a judge, Alderbeck, stated that the tapes of the conversation between Eric and Ozeal were admissible. So essentially what happened is because he threatened him, it violated the doctor-patient confidentiality privilege. You know, you can't threaten people. It's just not good. It doesn't work out for you. No, not at all. Okay, so this is where it gets really kind of crazy because then this there's appeals that started and it takes two more years for them to even get into a courtroom. That's insane. It's really sad. So in August of um of 1992, most of the tapes that were were admissible except for one, and that's the one where Eric is discussing the murders. Mm-hmm. So the key piece of evidence is kind of removed, but the boys were still indicted in 1992. They like officially, officially charged them with their parents' murders. Now, the trials were a bit of a circus because they go to court twice for this. In 1993, when they start, their trial was broadcast on court TV. That's fucking crazy. But I'm not surprised because of the status of them, because they're essentially celebrity status, you know? Right. And like Tara was saying, they put out headlines that said, rich Beverly Hills brothers kill their parents or, you know, and it was always like anytime they spoke about the family, they always mentioned that they had money. So it was always like, The wealthy Menendez family. Well, yeah. And I mean, I didn't like go into details on what kind of executive he was, but he was an executive in the entertainment industry. He made a lot of coin. Mm -hmm. He was an executive producer on like Rambo, Red Heat. Oh, God. Yeah. And like fucking Larry King was in that documentary series about him. (laughs) Yes. Larry King and his bright ass green suspenders. Yeah, I saw that. And I was like, God damn. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Larry King, what you wearing? (laughs) but they're in court and it's becoming this big circus and they had like if i ever get convicted of a crime someone please find leslie abramson and have her fucking represent me because this woman calling her a bulldog does not even do her justice she is like a mama bear on speed mixed with a bulldog and a stun gun god yes she is fucking Holy Mm -hmm. shit. Like, you want to talk about a spin team. This woman looked at two boys who were on record saying, I killed my parents. We shot them the fuck up. And she was like, okay, now tell me about yourselves. And she talked to them and she got to know them. And she realized there was a much deeper thing here. And essentially, her theory was that the brothers were driven to murder by a systematic lifetime abuse at the hands of their parents, especially the sexual abuse at the hands of their father because Jose Jose was a dick, but he was also a perfectionist. And one of the things that Leslie Abrams brings up time and time again throughout the trial is that for Eric, mm-hmm. he would have to get up at like 5 a.m. and go out to the tennis courts. And his father had coaches that would just drill, 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 yell and drill and throw things and hit them and just basically abuse him until he got it right. And then he had to come home, shower, put on a happy face, go to high school, be at high school all day, leave high school, go to more training where he's drilled and hit and abused, come home, fuck his father, eat dinner and do his homework and go to bed by 10 p.m. I'm really sorry I had to say it that way, but that's literally it. Yep. So yeah, if you're not comfortable with this, again, you can probably cut off right here because this is where 
in the trials where the details come the fuck out and we don't want to make anybody triggered or uncomfortable in a bad place. So again, if you need to hop off, I'd say now's probably the time. We love you. Yes, we love you very much. So this is where Eric and Lyle start talking about the abuse and how it goes back years. This isn't something that like one day when he's older, Jose looks at Eric and is like, oh, I like you. No, this is something that both boys had dealt with their entire lives. It goes back to when they were in New Jersey and they were in elementary school and younger. And they talk about how Lyle was first conditioned and he then turned around and started abusing his brother. And like there was this thing like, so there was a couple of summers where like cousins would come stay with them for long periods of time. And these cousins actually testified on behalf of Eric and Lyle at the trial and said there were times where Eric and Lyle would be taken down the hall to their parents' room and Kitty would be in the living room with them. And they would be like, well, where, where's Eric and Lyle? Where'd they go? Like, where did so-and-so go? And Kitty would be like, don't worry about it. You know, and they would try to like sneak down the hall and then she'd be like, don't you even go near that door. And then it was like one of one of his cousins said he knew what was going on. Like he didn't know, but he knew because it was like they weren't allowed to go to the room with them. It was always like around the same time. It didn't happen every day. It happened every few days. And then they would come and get the boys and the boys would go into the room and they would be in there with Jose for a long time. And then the boys weren't allowed to come out for a while after. So like Jose would be out and doing his thing, but the boys had to stay and I'm assuming get their shit together. And then Jose would go in and get them and bring them back out. And that would be it. It's absolutely crazy. And like Tara said, when Eric talked to her earlier, like right before they commit the murder, and she's like, I'm not stupid. I've always known. Kitty Menendez was a direct contributor to the sexual abuse of those boys. She was a procurer of them. She got them. She brought them to him. She knew exactly what was going on. Now, she could have been a victim in herself. Who knows what Jose would have done to her? Apparently, this is a generational thing where Kitty had some sort of abuse when she was younger. But at the same time, it's like, come on, these are your children. Mm-hmm. Like, she just, I don't understand. Like, I think Kitty and Jose were each other's American dream. Yeah. Jose saw her as the blonde, bubbly personality that, like, charmed everyone. And he was that, like, bad boy Cuban. I mean, if you really think about it, like, they got married in 1963. Think about it like, um, I love Lucy. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like, it's like not saying the show's modeled after them. But, yeah, that thought. Yeah. I did have a thought, too. The boys. Sorry, like, I'm comparing it to the Neverland episode, but whatever. No worries. You know, they those boys had mentioned... They didn't see the abuse as abuse. And even the Eric and Lyle had said the same thing. They thought it was something special, something with love because they were getting their dad's attention. So I didn't know about Kitty having abuse. Yeah. So maybe, you know, I'm not protecting her or defending her because fuck her. Right. But, you know, there could be something in her head where she was conditioned to think that as well. Like, you never know. Right. I mean... Essentially, her sister comes out and talks about it like briefly, like Eric mentions it. And then she says that there's a generational abuse, her sister. Mm. And like, that's the weird thing. It's like Kitty's sister just totally took Eric and Lyle's side. Right. She was like, I get it. I get what they went through. Kitty's brother is like, fuck those kids. Like, they need to die. Which kind of lets me believe like, well, maybe, maybe he had something to do with that. Yeah. But. Kitty was described as selfish and a mentally unstable alcoholic, a drug addict. And again, she encouraged her husband's abuse of the children. And she was also violent. Like, you see the fact that she, like, ripped Mm -hmm. Lyle's hairpiece off and threw it on the ground. Like, and she did that in front of Eric, which means that she felt confident. Like, this isn't something out of the ordinary. Right. Yeah. It's just like, whatever. This is our normal. Like, I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't give a flying fuck. Mm Mm-hmm. So the boys spend an egregious amount of time on the witness stand testifying day in and day out about what happened to them. And like one of the mistakes that happened in this trial is that the way they dress them, they dress them to look like boys because they wanted to humanize their story. But they put them in like these pink sweaters 
the fucking sweaters. Right. Big mistake. <laughs> and it was like when someone goes, oh, yeah, that kid who's 22, 23 years old and he's dressed like my mom and I are about to go out on our yacht. Like they look like yuppie little kids. Yeah. And it kind of made them seem like they didn't really understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. So that kind of backfired. That backfired on them. Yeah, I guess what they were trying to do, it's like that thought where, you know, on the female side, like Scott Peterson with the mistress, how she was like in very professional clothing, very modest, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. Right. They're trying to put on this persona that's very... I don't know. They're trying to make them look innocent. Yeah, they're trying to make themselves look innocent and sway the jury and everybody's Mm. perception, like, visually. And there was a couple of things that happened to kind of, like, put a nail in the coffin of these cocky rich boys. Like, Eric suffered from anxiety, like, severe anxiety. And one day he, like, took too many Xanax. So people were like, oh, my God, he can't even handle, you know, getting up and talking about this. But he did it type thing. Another thing was, is he was really nervous and he had mentioned before walking in to his lawyer, Leslie, like, I'm really nervous. And Leslie cracked a joke to him to calm him down. And he smiled. Right. But nobody knew why he smiled. So people thought he was being arrogant and coming in and just being like, "Mm mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is how I felt for years. Like, I knew about this case. I always thought they were these rich boys who just wanted a ton of money Mm -hmm. and they killed their parents for and they got caught. Like, I bought into that because they made fucking movies off these guys. Lifetime everything. They weren't even convicted. You can watch all kinds of stuff on these boys. Yeah. So what ends up happening is that they spend months. The DA's office had these, I'm going to say, like, not fit for this case DA's. And they were really arguing and they were saying things like, you know, you have to ignore the fact that they were like, you know, diddled, essentially. You got to really focus on the fact that they murdered these people. And it's like this is kind of where it compares to Gypsy. It's like these boys went through a lot of shit and they committed murder. Granted, they shouldn't have committed murder. They shouldn't have killed their parents. What they should have done is held a fucking press conference and say, my father, Jose Menendez, is a pedophile and has been sexually abusing me for years. That would have been a better thing because guess what? He would have gone to prison and they would have been able to move on in life. Mm-hmm. However, exactly, exactly. Sorry. No, <laughs> I'm just like, no. preach it, preach it. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm sure right now they're like, fuck, I wish I had done something like that. Like, right. But when you're a victim of abuse, no matter if it's sexual or physical or mental, you don't know a way out. You don't. You don't have the wherewithal to get out. There's a reason people stay victims is because they don't ever believe they can escape. People who are not victims anymore, people who have become survivors, they found a way to get out. So after like a long deliberation and everything like that, I think it was like 23 days, they had two deadlock juries and they took a vote and it was Eric's first. And they said, look, we're never this jury is never going to go one way because it's literally all you have to have is one person sitting on a jury Anytime that there's life or death on the line and that one person saying, nope, I don't think so. And that's it. At the end of the day, it's a hung jury. So both boys got a hung jury, which means they could get a mistrial. And the Los Angeles district attorney, Gil Garcetti, he was like immediately like mistrial, like cleared, held press conference. I'm doing this again. Now, Here is where this didn't really work in favor for them. So now they're sitting in jail waiting. And guess who comes into the prison or in the the L.A. County jail? O.J. motherfucking Simpson. And O.J. gets in there. His case is going. And O.J. wins. Right. And that's a different topic for a different day. (laughs) That's a different episode. If you guys would like one, (laughs) please let us know. (laughs) Right. Totally different episode. But. The Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office has a huge fucking chip on their shoulder and they need a goddamn win because for 10 straight years, they've been losing all of their high profile cases because they weren't good lawyers. Gil Garcetti, you weren't a good lawyer. That's why your office kept losing. Facts are facts, sir. Yes. (laughs) So what ends up happening is they're like, let's go back. We're retrying this case. So they get a new judge, Judge Stanley Westberg, Weisberg. Westberg or Weisberg? I don't give a fuck. (laughs) What you don't know is I've tried to say that four times, people. We're good. It's fine. Continue. 
So he does a couple of things. The first thing he says is, all y'all media has to get out. No video cameras, no recording cameras in my courtroom. You may come in and take still photos. That's it. Mm. That's it. So no sound bites, no emotional Eric on the stand being leaked out. None of that. Mind you, in this time frame between their mistrial and this court date, they have had like four or five movies come out about these guys, at least two I know of. Yeah. That have come out and they've like, you know, they've made SNL sketches about them. They've done all of these things that really have put these guys as horrible people. I mean, granted, they murdered people. We get it. But they've really like demonized them in the media. So they were never going to get a fair trial, no matter who you're talking to. Did you know there was a movie that came out in 2017 about them? What was it called? It's called Menendez Blood Brothers. I don't like it. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I was just trying to like. Look for the titles. Look for the. Oh, yeah. The other one came out in 94. Yeah. I mean, it came out like right after the mistrial. So this reporter basically hated their lawyer, Leslie, and was like, I and he basically was the expert witness or the expert on one of the movies. And it's all about how they were spending. I mean, granted, they were spending a lot of money, but how they were partying, how they were living the life of luxury how they faked that phone call to their parents and how they did all of this stuff and basically demonized them in the media. So then they're back in court and they can't, they don't have a fair jury and everything's like, you know. But here's the other part. Weisberg did not allow the defense to testify on the sexual abuse charges, saying that it didn't fucking matter that these kids had been abused. They killed their parents and they need to fry for it. So any and all testimony that was related to the sexual abuse They couldn't do because if the sexual abuse, because it's called an imperfect defense, Mm -hmm. essentially what that means is that if you now it means that if you're a victim of like an abusive situation and you kill someone and you do something out of this, not that you can't, but if you do, you essentially would get manslaughter versus first or second degree murder. Because they're saying that you were in a situation where you felt in in immediate danger. Right. They were saying they either were going to kill us or they were going to rape us. And if you take the sexual abuse out, you have to look at these like, how weird would this be if you can't testify to sexual abuse? Why would these boys think that their parents were going to kill them? It'd just be like, they just thought we we were going to get killed because of blank. Because we can't fucking tell you. But we just knew. So it's like, okay, you're full of shit at that point. Right. So they're, whatever they're saying doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And the judge allowed it in that Annie um, docu-series, which, again, we highly recommend. They state, like, the judge fried them. Like, the judge made this choice. People were like, I can't believe the judge would do this. Like, and one of the appeals, a judge was like, he did what? What? And all they wanted was a fair trial. Like, that's what they're saying is, I want a fair trial. They know they've committed a crime and they know they need to do some sort of time, but it's coming on 30 years, people. Right. So they go back to court and they obviously can't say, but there's one thing that could save them on the sexual that could get this in, which is that Eric, after being incarcerated, started seeing a new therapist and is tell- he's obviously talking to this therapist. The therapist is Dr. William Vicary. And Dr. William Vicary has taken these detailed notes about them. He's talking to Eric about how he thought maybe he should have killed himself instead of his parents, how he just didn't feel like he deserved to live. And because it's in his notes and he's talking about the sexual abuse, it's admissible in court because he's talking about the murder. However, Leslie Abramson, she goes to Dr. Vicary and says, look, I need to see your notes. And they pull out the notes Mm -hmm. and she's like, you can't have that in there. You can't have that in there. You can't have that in there. So she asks him to alter his notes as evidence to turn them in. Here's where stupidity happens. And I hope Leslie fired this bitch. I hope she went back to that office and was like, you are done. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You are done forever. Yeah. So the district attorney was looking for a copy because they couldn't find them of Dr. Vicari's notes. So Leslie's assistant goes into her file and pulls out the original copy of the notes. Copies them, fax them over. They're in court. Somebody's reading them. And one of the district attorneys or Leslie's like, that's not in there. These, These aren't in my notes. What are you talking about? And the district attorney leans over to the other one and is like, hey, why are my notes different than yours? 
And if they had watched Parks and Rec, they could have just started yelling something about Jerry, but... Jerry, Larry, Gary. (laughs) Gergich, Gingrich. They were like, wait, what's happening? So they asked Dr. Vicari, like, why are these notes different? And he goes, because defense counsel told me to edit my notes. And they go, which defense counsel? And and he goes, Leslie Abramson. And that kind of sucked. Because that was literally the end of their of this trial for the Menendez brothers because they're how did I describe her she is not just a bulldog she's a mama bear on speed mixed with a bulldog with a taser mm-hmm. right you have her and she's now being sidelined because everything she says I mean they asked her they said hey do you want to take the stand and defend yourself and she said I plead the fifth so she did, didn't give him anything she couldn't have said, like, I didn't think those were necessary. Like, I just, you know, she could have made something up. She was a very good bullshitter, but she didn't. And so the other defense attorney had to step up and he wasn't as vivacious as her at all. So you have her step down and, you know, they try to, you know, make a motion for a mistrial. They tried to do anything they could, but they couldn't do it. So they go and they are essentially convicted of first-degree murder for killing their parents in order to inherit their father's wealth. And on July 2nd, 1996, Judge Weisberg sentenced the both of them to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole and then sentenced them to consecutive sentences for the murders. So essentially like two life sentences. Right. And like, it doesn't sit well with me, this judge. Like, I want fair to be fair. Like, I want the justice system to be honorable. And he wasn't. Even Leslie said, like, I can't be mad at the jury. The decision they made, they were only given one. They had to give, like, say he would, they were guilty of first degree murder. The judge would not allow them to do anything else. They couldn't do manslaughter. They couldn't take it down because of the imperfect defense, anything like that. So they did ex- the only thing they could do. I mean, basically, they had to deliberate whether it was going to be death or not. And they ultimately decided, no, the possibility of parole. Mm -hmm. You know, during their sentencing trial, one of the defense lawyers is up there and he's essentially almost crying. He's like, these kids were abused. These kids were so mistreated. They didn't have a life and you're punishing them because they didn't think they had another choice. Like, you need to give them a lighter sentence. And the DA, one of the district attorneys, stands up and starts screaming how Lyle Menendez has black eyes and his eyes are black as death and how he deserves or his eyes deserve to be dead. I don't like that. No. When did that become acceptable? Right. What the fuck? Right. Like, when did that become accept? That's not an acceptable. Like, no, you're a professional. Get your shit together. Exactly. You know, get your fucking shit together, DA. And then when it came down, the DA, the actual DA, Glenn Garcetti, like, got all excited, was like, yeah, and gave a press conference. And he was like, I'm so happy. They deserved it. Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I really wanted to say to that guy, like, you didn't have enough people in your office with the wherewithal. To literally convict O.J. Simpson, who they had DNA evidence. Let me say that again. DNA evidence mm-hmm. that he committed a murder. Mm-hmm. But you have boys saying, I was sexually abused and was afraid for my life. And so we killed our parents. Granted, they went over the top. They shot them way too much. Lyle shot his mom in the face. Like, Yeah, he went back in Zombieland double tapped her. Yeah, a little bit. Which, by the way, I'm super excited. There's two coming out. Ah, yeah, I can't wait for the sequel. Anyway, continue. And these boys, like, like you you guys, Spixers, you know. You know how Tara and I feel about sexual predators and pedophiles and things like that. And we talk about this, like, we talk about abuse in multiple ways because we talked about it in Neverland. And obviously that didn't result in a death of the abuser. Mm-hmm. But in Gypsy Rose's case, it definitely resulted in the death of her mother. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of those things where if we were having this conversation about these two young men in 2019, we'd be thinking differently. Oh, yeah. I feel like this case would have went a lot differently. Right. And they said that the jurors said that all of the women completely believed their story. Mm -hmm. They felt for them. They knew exactly. They were like, this is horrible. These poor boys like, oh, these poor boys. 
But then you have, and this is on the first trial, and then you have the men who were like, teenage boys can't be sexually assaulted by their father. I'm sitting here shaking my head for those who can't see me in disgust. I'm just fucking blown away. And I get it. It was 1994. People didn't know better. No, people knew better. People just didn't want to believe that this high profile man would ever do anything wrong. Yeah, because bad things like this didn't happen to good people like this of this Mm -hmm. status ever. Except for people who wanted money. Mm -hmm. This only happens when rich little boys feel entitled and their daddies don't want to give them money. So they kill them for their money. And I don't think the money ever crossed their mind. I think that you'd gone back to 1989 and said to Lyle and Eric Menendez, you can walk away right now. You'll have no money. Here's a plane ticket. Here's a bus ticket. Here's a fake ID. Get gone. I fucking guarantee you they would have gotten gone. Absolutely. I completely agree. They would have left. They would have left all of that behind. And I really think that what was happening is that Eric was coming to terms with what had happened to him, that it wasn't love, that it wasn't special time with dad. It was a sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And like he said, I was so excited to get out and go to school because I think he was going to UCLA. Right. And he was so excited because he was like, I'm going to live in a dorm. I'm going to meet people. You know, I'm going to get a girlfriend. I'm going to go do, I'm going to go be a guy without this secret. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I'm just going to move on. There's nothing my dad's going to be able to do to me. And then I think when his dad was like, no, you think you're going somewhere? No, you're coming home. Like when you really think about that statement, what it really meant to Eric was it's never going to end. So we wish Eric could have gotten away from his dad. I'm going to rein it in before my hashtag Jessica rant goes on too long tonight. <laughs> That's okay. They're essentially incarcerated. And well, in 1996, They give an interview to Barbara Walters for 60 Minutes, and Eric says, like, unless we're put in the same prison, this is likely the last time I'll see my brother. Because they could go to 11 facilities in California alone, Mm -hmm. but but they didn't. So Lyle was moved to the Mule Creek State Prison in North Carolina, and he was there for a long ass time. Yeah. Eric was sentenced when he went out. He went to Folsom. And he was there from 96 to 2013. And then he was moved to the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility. Um, they obviously tried to appeal their cases several times in February of 1998. They were denied. It just, you know, they did it again in May. They just kept really pushing and pushing and pushing because they thought that they were basically given an unfair trial. And in September of 2007, they took it to a three-judge panel, which ended up denying them. But there was like a judge I mentioned earlier, and I'm going to say his last name wrong. I apologize to this judge, Judge Alex Kanazki. He basically stated that the judge changed the laws or the rules of the game to basically convict them. And he said, look, I'm not going to overturn his his ruling because one of the things that they tell judges is like, don't worry about the decisions you make as long as you can justify what you make. Mm-hmm. And the judge was like, look, these guys admit to killing their parents. Like it's first degree. Who cares what happened to them? But I was really happy that a judge kind of stood back and was like, wait a second. Okay. We, sh- we shouldn't do that. So the men have been incarcerated for what? 25 years now? 20. Yeah. 25 years now. Mm. Yeah. Long time. Since 1996. I mean, obviously, they've actually been incarcerated a lot longer because they got arrested early in, like, what, 1992? Damn, almost my whole life. <laughs> literally, like, literally a year shy of you. They've had, you know, they've had their ups and downs. They've been in prison. But they've had some happy things, too. A young woman by the name of Anna Erickson fell for Lyle and they got married. But it didn't last too long. They got married on July 2nd, 1996, but they divorced April 1st of 2001 because she basically said that Lyle was cheating on her. What? Like in prison? Is that what she means? No, no, with another woman. Oh, okay. Uh, Because two, like literally just over two years later, he remarried a woman by the name of Rebecca Sneed and they've been married since then. Mm. And Eric also got married married a woman by the name of Tammy Roth Sackerman in Folsom State Prison and like their marriage was highly profiled over Lyles because she was this bubbly little blonde and you know and she has stated like 
they got married in like the waiting area, not the waiting area, like the visiting center. And for their wedding cake, because they couldn't have a cake, they had a Twinkie. But she said, as our wedding cake was a Twinkie, we improvised and it was a wonderful ceremony until I had to leave. And that was a very lonely night. Hmm. Tara mentioned earlier that Larry King took an interest, but he took an interest in her. He couldn't understand why someone would want to marry someone who was incarcerated because like he said, like you can't cohabitate with one another. You, you can't live with them. But I think she saw that deep down he was a good guy. And then, like we mentioned earlier, there's the new in 2017, they have their A&E. It's a five part series. The Menendez murders. Eric tells all. And basically, it's an interview with Eric over the phone. There's a couple clips from Lyle. It's not too much. But at that point, the men, the brothers hadn't seen each other since 1996. But there was like kind of a miracle thing that happened for these two brothers. Lyle has since been moved to the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility. And the two of them are in the same housing unit. Really? Huh. Yeah. Which is it's kind of great because originally the detective on the case advised against them because they could conspire and commit more crimes in in prison. And I'm like, okay, the, you know, psychiatrists were saying, like, you shouldn't separate them because this could have a long term psychological Mm -hmm. damage on these men. But they were kind of like, who the fuck cares? They're like, you know. So at this point in time, there's something happening in California. There is an assembly bill that was passed that essentially allows cases where especially people who wouldn't have been allowed. So like we talked about earlier, the imperfect defense really at the time that they went through trial was only for women. It was a battered woman's. That's literally what the other thing was called was like a battered woman's plea or whatever. And they weren't women, so it didn't apply to them. So we've grown a lot in the last 20 something years and have made a change to that. So they actually, even though they've already exhausted all of their appeals, they actually under this new law would be able to go in and have another appeal because they could use this defense. They've both also have moved on in prison and been very successful. They they've given back. They've you know, one of them is teaching. One of them was helping people with like loss because the correctional facility that they're both in now is kind of one of those like housing units for like old and sick. Mm -hmm. So essentially, Eric was in there helping people like hospice style, like towards the end, counseling people, just kind of loving people, which shows me that these guys can change. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, when I first heard about this case years ago i was like fuck them those rich little bastards they had it all what they do they like squandered it because they wanted to kill their parents for the money even i at first was the same way i Uh hadn't looked into this case at all until jessica brought it up a while ago that and and we put it on our schedule and the very first thing i watched i I remember messaging her and i was like fuck these kids fuck these guys because one of the very first things i watched was an interview with barbara walters and she just said but wait just wait you might change your mind Mm -hmm. she's like you might not and that's fine but you might change your mind and watch this and that's when she told me about the a and e docuseries and i did because it's that's just how media is it's going to play any case everyone has their agenda Um, especially in cases like this. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to fall in that. They were evil and they just wanted their parents' money. So they just went and cold-blooded killed them. But it's definitely not the case. It's definitely not the case. No, I think this was a clear, like not clear cut, but this was a case of abused boys who were trying to get away from a very masculine power and met it with a very masculine power. And at the end of the day... I honestly want to say, like, shame on those family members who just stood by. And, you know, I know that I should I do have compassion and sadness that both Jose and Kitty were killed because I don't think anyone should be killed. We talked about that with Gypsy. But at the same time, it's like these two individuals were hurting their children Mm -hmm. and enjoyed hurting their children. And there is this kind of like primal maternal pre-civilization thing inside of me that's like fuck yeah kill those bitches Mm -hmm. but you know we have to use our words not our guns (laughs) yes 
Yeah, they definitely should be the ones that are in prison for these things. Right. Again, I know I say this time and time again, but if you can hear us and you're a victim of abuse, there are people out there who can help you get to safety. Mm -hmm. Whether it's physical, mental, sexual, whatever kind of abuse you are, there are resources for you. There are... There are people out there who want to love you and will accept you for, you know, not being the perfect person that someone else wants you to be. Mm-hmm. Just reach out if you need to. If you only feel like you can reach out to us, reach out to us and we'll find you somewhere near you to help. Yep. And then those same resources we had posted before in regards to mental health and things like that, I'm going to go ahead and have those in the show notes for you guys again. If you want to even, you know, if you're not like, because I understand, you know, like maybe you don't know us, like you don't know us in real life. So you may not want to talk to us. You might want to just do something and just keep it anonymous and just feel safe. Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of resources that we've found since we did Neverland and other episodes mm-hmm. that are great. So we're not sponsored or anything. Mm-mm. But yeah, I'll link them down below for you guys. And just know that getting help is a sign of strength. Mm-hmm. We'll end on that before I cry. <laughs> yes. Okay, Spooksters. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Let us know what you thought. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the good places. And um, we will see you on Thursday for a stabby. Have a good day. Bye, guys. Bye.